Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I want to know what Clash is. I want you to pardon me. <laughs> nice. Nice. Thank I mean, you. not the song. <laughs> but the performance, uh, you gave it your best, sir. I gave it everything, yeah. <laughs> Bloody foreigner coming over here demanding to know what love is. <laughs> Where was Nigel then? <laughs> uh, hello, Kevin. How are you? I am grand. How the bloody hell are you? Yeah, I'm quite, I'm quite good as well, to be honest with you. It's been a while since we've recorded. It has been, um, due to various um, scheduling issues and things like that. The, mm. Yes, it has taken us a little bit longer to get round to uh, having our u- usual inanity. But... but to you, the listener, it makes no difference because we will be releasing this episode in line with our usual schedule. So these are the lengths we go to to satisfy you, our small but loyal audience. Yeah, cheers. Cheers for downloading. Um, please tell more people, but <laughs> wait for the exactly. begging at the end. We won't do it at the start. <laughs> Uh, Kev, new clash, new season. I know it's very, very exciting, and um, it's a as as you brilliantly put um, at the end of our previous recording, an absolute slobber knocker. It is. So we are restarting our musical road trip, our trip round mu- famous musical cities, and we start in Seattle in the summer, strong early autumn of 1991. And we are doing, well, today I'm taking us through Pearl Jam's debut album, 10. What are you doing in a couple of weeks, Kev? I'm doing an album by a little-known beat combo, Nevermind by Nirvana. Never heard of it. No, (laughs) never's going to catch on. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, a veritable Clash of the Titans. Indeed, or Clash of the Stonewashed Denim. Uh, and unwashed hair. Yeah, and ripped jeans. You know, we we can keep we can continue going with this for a while. So I've been looking forward to to doing this for ages. I don't know about you. I've still so listeners will know by now. We may release the episodes two weeks apart, but we record both back to back. I have got no idea which way I'm going to come down on this. Still, no, I I, I still don't know. It, it will come down to when we're scoring, and I will I will be very much influenced how we how we talk about it. To be honest, yeah, ditto. Uh, we'll get there, though. Should we do some Can't Get You Out of My Head? Yes, let's get into it. All right, have you got any shite, Kev? I do not have any shite this time, fortunately. Uh, I do, Ooh. unfortunately. So, I have been doing quite a lot of travel with work. Most weeks recently, I've been away for a couple of days. So, you know when you're away somewhere, you're in the hotel bar, having a drink, and like there's background music on and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know it gets to that point in the night where... Something comes on and you think, mm, it's time for bed now. <laughs> uh, to that end, I give you To the Moon and Back by Savage Garden. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. Savage Garden. Oh, God. I mean, it could have been worse. It could have been Truly Madly Deeply by Cabbage Garden. But fucking hell. Just, do you know what? It's time to drink up and go to bed. Yeah. I, uh, do you know what? I don't think I'd have finished my drink. I think I would have just gone, <laughs> do you know what? It's, it's This this has ended my night. <laughs> yeah, I nearly did. But I just bought an expensive scotch. So I was like, no. Thank you, M.O.R. Australian pap. Yeah, exactly. Oh, dreadful. All right, and with that, what is the good stuff that you would like to call out? So, because um, there has been a slight gap between recordings, it has changed almost every week since. (laughs) (laughs) So, if I finally came down upon... So, it's a new band, a band called Sorry. has nothing to do with the uh, Ronnie Ronnie Corbett... uh, (laughs) Bastard, I was taking a drink! (laughs) (laughs) So they're a London band. I can't really describe them. They're, they're a bit mad, and they they recently released their debut album, which is uh, Anywhere But Here. And the song I want to point to is the first song on that album, which is called Let the Lights On. I could, as I say, I can't really define it as anything in particular. It's really interesting, and it's odd, and it's definitely worth your attention. The album's really odd as well, but really enjoyable, so check it out. You have piqued my interest. I will check it out. Uh, So mine is something, I mean, you'll love it, Kev. It is, the song is called Binge, and the band is Dead Letter. So it's right up your alley, mate. Imagine the fall crossed with LCD sound system. Okay, that that is all kinds of good things. (laughs) I am bang into that. Uh, So quite like Yard Act, with a bit of extra funk in there as well. It's great. Boss into that we'll we'll be checking it out very strongly great all right there we go as ever we will add those to our playlists go and check them out cool right then do you have any top trumps i mean i i hope you do one or two (laughs) (laughs) i won last time didn't i i believe you did and plus as we as we both know i always forget the categories so it's it's always better if you start Okay, fine. So I'm going to start at the top. I'm going to start with sales. 10 by Pearl Jam sold 16 million copies worldwide, there or thereabouts. Okay, uh, never mind, has has done better. Oh, shite, go on. So in the US alone, 10.6 million sales. So interestingly, in the US, 10 outsold that. It sold 13 million in the US. But overall, 16 million. So so 1.8 million in the UK, uh, a million in France, a million in Germany, a million in Canada. So All right, you've already been. Yeah. Okay, so you're one up, and it's your choice of category next. So I think on that basis, the, I'm going to try and solidify my, um, my position. So I'm going uh, certifications. Okay, go on. Diamond in the US. Diamond? Is Diamond's not a thing? Apparently it is. Uh, well, so I've got 13 times platinum for 10. So is that better or worse than know. diamond? It says diamond. <laughs> um, six times platinum in the UK. Only twice platinum in the UK. Uh, I've also got eight times platinum in Australia. Five times platinum in Australia. Seven times in Canada. Diamond again in Canada. Do you know what? I'm going to give it to you just because like, they appear to have invented a type of certification for Nevermind, which has never been repeated anywhere else. So fine, you can have it for two diamonds. Diamond double page. <laughs> nice. <laughs> right. Uh, charts. Mm-hmm. 
US Billboard, yep. number one. Ah, oh, shite, number two. UK, number seven. Number 18. Ooh. So the lowest in its uh, weekly chart performance was in Hungary, where it only reached number 12. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, the best I can do, my highest, is the Canadians got it to number one. So, you know, it, it is right. Only only reached number four in Zimbabwe. Oh, <laughs> I blame Mugabe. <laughs> so many things. Right, you're 3-0 up. The best I can do is a draw. Go on. So, awards. Yeah. I cannot find any reference to winning any awards. Okay, well, I can... Uh, so, I do. So, I have two Grammy nominations in 1993... But it won four MTV VMAs in 1993, including Video of the Year for Jeremy, which we will be talking about in a bit. Wow. Okay. Get in. I've won one. Consolation, or is it the start of a momentous comeback? Have you have uh, you rushed not. into the net to get, uh, to get I the disc? Have. <laughs> from... I certainly have. I Anyway, let's do the lists. Okay. So Rolling Stone top 500 lists. In 2012, it was 209. In 2020, that had gone up to 160. Okay, yeah, definitely uh, beating that. So uh, 17 um, in 2012, upgraded to number six in 2020. Jesus, yeah, you've twatted me there. Um, I w- uh, so one thing that 10 does have, which uh, never mind, certainly doesn't, um, 10 was voted as the best debut album of all time by Rolling Stone in 2013. Nevermind is not a debut album, so could not have won that I, I do have some issues with um, Rolling Stone. Go on. Uh, the magazine ranked the album number 10 in its list of 40 greatest punk albums of all time. What? Yeah. Would we describe Nevermind as a punk album? No. No. It has punk elements about it, but it's definitely not a yes. punk album. No, it's not. I'm assuming Nobby compiled that list. I have no idea. Let's just say it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was second, second best album in rock and roll history in a VH1 poll in 2001. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. That seals it then. <laughs> VH1 decided. <laughs> it was also on uh, Time's um, 2006 list of all time, clever pun, 100 albums. Fine. I think you've won this one, Okay, And I also just want to add, uh, the Library of Congress added Nevermind to the National Recording Registry as a culturally significant album. Yes, one can can agree with that. It's not a bad accolade, that. (laughs) Right, okay, bring it home. You're 4-1 up, you've won it. Let's see if you can rub salt in the wounds with an injury time time addition to your tally. Okay, Uh, reviews, uh, well, scores. Rolling Stone, five stars. Four stars. Q. Five stars. Four stars. Pitchfork, 10 out of 10. Nine out of 10. Chris Gow's Consumer Guide. Presumably, he talks about albums and then uh, reviews washing machines. <laughs> Go on, what did he give it? An A. B minus. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll get to that in a bit. It was absolutely, it was uh, beaten by a really good blender. <laughs> Best I can do. All music gave it five. Ted gave ten five out of five. So, yeah, you've routed me there, mate. Well done. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can't say as I'm surprised. No, not really. Okay. So, yeah, shall I start taking us through ten by Pearl Jam? Yeah, I think we should definitely get into it because I assume you have a couple of things to say about it. Whew, I do. So, listeners will no doubt be pleased at the brevity of some of our recent shows. 
Yeah. <laughs> we'll see how we go. Right. Strap in. <laughs> so, 10 by Pearl Jam. It's their debut album. Released on Epic Records, 27th of August, 1991. It was recorded between the 27th of March and the 26th of April, that same year, at the London Bridge Studios in Seattle. The album is produced by Rick Parashaw and Pearl Jam themselves. Right, so a little bit on the background to Pearl Jam themselves. Bassist Jeff Amon and rhythm guitarist Stone Gossard, they were previously in the band Mother Love Bone, which dissolved when their lead vocalist Andy Wood died of an overdose just before their debut album was released in 1990. Naturally, Amon and Gossard bit gutted at his passing and also the resulting demise of the band that they were, you know, hoping debut album's coming out, it's going to be our big break, here we go. So, to get over that, as part of his grieving process, if you like, Stone Gossard threw himself into writing, and he was writing material that was harder-edged, that was darker than what he'd previously done. He started practicing after a few months with another guitarist from Seattle, Mike McCready. His band, Shadow, had recently broken up. McCready encouraged him to reconnect with Jeff Amon, So they got together as a trio and recorded a five-song demo tape, which they sent around the place to say, right, we've got two guitarists and a bassist. We ain't got a singer and we ain't got a drummer. So they'd made this demo tape to, to try and attract other people to join the band. That tape found its way into the hands of former Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer Jack Irons. They asked him to see if he'd be interested in joining the band himself or to distribute the demo to anyone he, he, he felt might certainly be interested in, in being the, the lead singer. So Ian said he didn't want to join the band as a drummer, but he did give the demo to his friend from San Diego, uh, Eddie Vedder. Eddie Vedder was at the time the lead vocalist for a band in San Diego called Bad Radio, um, not to be confused with Heavy Stereo, Game Archers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he listened to the demo tape before going surfing and whilst he was surfing lyrics started coming to him for some of the tracks so he then went back to his place and recorded vocals to three of the songs which became Alive, Once and Footsteps in what he later describes as we'll come to in a little bit as a sort of three part mini opera called Mamasan so Eddie Vedder sent that tape with his vocals overlaid on the demo track Back to Gossard and Eamon in Seattle. They were impressed enough to say, Sound, we'll fly you up to Seattle for an audition. And within a week, Eddie Vedder was a member of the band. They then recruited Dave Crewson on the drums. And at that point, they took the name Mookie Blaylock, which was a reference to a then active NBA basketball player. Okay. I, I thought... <laughs> I thought it was basically like a character from an obscure Nickelodeon cartoon. I know, it does sound like it. Something tells me that had they not changed their name, I don't think we'd be here today talking about the groundbreaking 10 by Mookie Blaylock. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so they played their first gig in Seattle in October t- uh, t- 1990. They opened... Uh, a few gigs for Alice in Chains in December of that year. Mookie Blaylock soon signed to Epic Records, whereupon they renamed themselves Pearl Jam. Now, so the reason they changed their name was that Epic 
thought that they might get sued, basically, by Blaylock over naming rights because he just signed a massive endorsement deal with Nike. <laughs> Uh, why are you taking our client's name for your band? Yeah, uh, good question. Uh, however, there is a link to the album title and Mookie Blaylock because 10 was his shirt number. Oh, Apparently. right, it's okay. Right, so there's been a lot of conflicting stories about what the name Pearl Jam refers to. What do you think Pearl Jam means? The commonly held belief is that it, well, semen, <laughs> yes, <laughs> basically. It, it, the male ejaculate, yes. yes. Spaff. Um, <laughs> yeah, indeed. We could go on like this for a long time. <laughs> In an early interview, Eddie Vedder said the name Pearl Jam was a reference to his great-grandmother, who had been called Pearl, which is a fact. And uh, she had been married to a Native American man who had a special recipe for peyote-laced jam. Pearl's jam. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not having that. Not having that. In 2006, in a cover article with Rolling Stone, uh, he did then admit that that story was, and I quote, total bullshit. <laughs> really? You named your, your band after you... I mean, even even this sounds like a euphemism for something, after your nan's jam. <laughs> yes, you're right. <laughs> um, so anyway, but even then... Jeff Amon and Mike McCready explained that Amon came up with Pearl and that the band later settled on Pearl Jam after attending a Neil Young concert in which he played extended jam versions of his songs. Again, I think that is utter shite. Look, just admit, admit to the fact that you were young and very stupid and you didn't expect that the name that you came up with, um, which was incredibly infantile, was going to stick. Quite, yeah. At least Limp Biscuit admitted it. Like test icicles. Like, <laughs> yeah, yes. You became successful, then you regretted the name. I think that's a funny name, though. To be honest with you. <laughs> but that says more about me than it does about them. I mean, I find it funny, but that's because we're incredibly uh, puerile. That's true. That's true. Anyway, so they're called Pearl Jam, uh, and it's obviously a reference to Spunk, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> right, so they recruited Rick Parashar as a producer because Stone Gossard and Jeff Heyman had previously worked with him on the Mother Love Bone debut. In March 1991, they went into London Bridge Studios in Seattle to start recording. So uh, Mike McCready said that 10 was mostly Stone and Jeff. Me and Eddie were along for the ride at that time. Jeff Amon said we knew we were still a long way from being a real band at that point. Um, and I suppose when you've got certainly half of the album is taken from demos that three of them recorded and two of them wrote in the aftermath of the, uh, the dissolution of this, this mm. other band in tragic circumstances, you can probably see why that is. Yeah, it, it does. There are bits that are slightly incongruous with other bits, but it still works. But like, mm. it, it doesn't feel natural as a piece, if you know what I mean. Oh, that's interesting because uh, that's not what I was getting at. Actually, my point was you can sort of you can understand why certain members of the band had that view that it was the more established partnership that was the dominant force at that time. Mm -hmm. That's what I was getting at. Right, okay, that is all I have on background. Do you have anything you wish to add? Absolutely not. Right, okay. Kevin, how and when did you first hear 10 by Pearl Jam? Okay, so uh, this is very much my older sister's uh, generation. Um, she was bang into this album. So very much uh, sort of around the time it, it came out, um, 
and it was played repeatedly in her Fiat Uno that she was driving driving about and driving us to school in. So, yeah, that's that's how I came across it, really. Fair enough. So, later for me, so so we've talked a lot before about how much influence my, my older brother had on, on my musical taste. This is not one of those things that he introduced me to. He was never really into this scene. Uh, so, I got into this when I started expanding beyond my indie horizons, if you like. So... Mm-hmm. 96, 97-ish, I couldn't tell you exactly when, but it was through Mates that I first heard 10. What I will say is I have revisited it an awful lot since I first listened to it. Very much so. All right, shall I talk a little bit about the artwork? Yeah, let's let's get into that. The artwork itself is credited to Jeff Ament. Photography is by Lance Mercer. But but basically, it's the idea of Jeff Ament. Mm -hmm. So, describe it to me. So obviously, big bold font uh, with Pearl Jam across the from, and then the band um, high fiving each other, like a, yeah, basically on on a, on a sort of crimson red background. The overwhelming, and I don't, I don't actually think the band have this image at all or anything like that. But the overwhelming sound that comes into my head when looking at that picture is, dude. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so, so the big bold Pearl Jam uh, is actually apparently a wooden cutout. Oh, it's not, it's not like put on top. No, no, no. They, they, so it was that was what was created, and they were standing in front of it. Uh, yeah, and like with hands in the air, sort of high fiving and showing that sort of togetherness. Uh, and it was Jeff Aitman that constructed that that wood cutout. So he said. The original concept was about really being together as a group and entering into the world of music as a true band, a sort of one-for-all deal. There was a bit of a headbutting going on with Sony Art Department at that time. The version that everybody got to know as the 10 album cover was pink, uh, but it was originally intended to be more of a burgundy colour, and the picture of the band was supposed to be black and white, which would have been incredibly art school, let's be honest with you. Yeah. It's become a very famous album cover and a very recognisable album cover, I, I would suggest that's more because of the success of the album than of the art itself. Yeah, it's it's not a great album cover. No. It's a bit as you say, like had their vision been realized, it's pure it's pure art school. It's mm-hmm. it it's only one step away of the band wistfully looking um into uh, the distance or leaning up against a wall, which every yeah. band has to do since the Ramones basically did it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, quite. I, but yeah, that is all I have to say about the the artwork. Memorable for the success of the album, but not in itself particularly remarkable. But well, a nice giant wooden font. I'll get. I'll give it that. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's true. Actually, we have physical font game for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> right? Should we start going through the tracks? Yeah, let's do it. All right, we start with once. Well, actually, we don't, we don't start with Once. We start, before we get into Once, with a very brief interlude of the hidden track that we will come to briefly at the end called Master Slave. So, so would you like my note? Yes, please. Um, did the Roses listen to this before uh, recording Breaking Into Heaven? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but at least this is only about 25 seconds yeah, and not four minutes. Yeah. Well, it shows you the amount of drugs that the Stone Roses were on that they decided to extend it out. <laughs> 
before we get into to wants itself, it's an odd way to start your debut album. It is like nice bit of fretless bass, but you know it's it's it proper. It lulls you into a very false sense of security, or not where you're going immediately once the song kicks in. No, exactly, exactly. Uh, but then the song does kick in. You get that that sort of really biting guitar part, chunky, chunky fucking riff, and Eddie Vedder absolutely fucking wailing. This is great stuff. I mean, it's like being slapped in the face with a big wet fish. It yeah. completely lulls you out of the uh, breaking into heaven, like little little thing. And then, yeah, it's, it re- really, really sets the scene. It does. Yeah, Chunky is right. Like, it's, it's in your face. It's straight away. It sounds and feels a million miles away from late 80s hair metal, it's doesn't it? It's fucking huge as well. It is. It's mad. I mean, when we go through Nevermind, we're going to be doing an awful lot of talk about double tracking, okay? Yeah. We just are. But you can hear it on this as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of double track guitars to make the sound big, but not, not too bombastic, yeah. if that makes sense. It's big, but it's not, it's not that kind of brash 80s hair metal. It's not, yeah. it's not Motley Crue kind of plastic big no, it quite so. We do still get an absolute face melter from Mike McCready, though. Oh, yes, we do. And not for the last time on this album. So straight away, that's that's quite a big departure from what we're going to talk about, obviously, when we go through through Nevermind. And just go about what we said about it feels a million miles away from 80s hair metal, and that's a good thing, and it does. In some ways, I think this acts as quite a good bridge between what you've come from and what you're going to. Yeah, because the particularly as we get into some of the other songs as well, is that there's proper face melting Van Halen style um, yep. solos. But I mean, I, know, I, I don't have certainly early Van Halen. I don't have as much as they later become, but. Yeah, I think you're right that it, it does create a kind of bridging point between grunge as as it becomes and that kind of 80s sound. Yep, agreed. So we both like it because it's really good. A yeah. couple of things to say about the track. So it this was one of the tracks that was on that five-track Stone Gossard demo in 91. Uh, it was an instrumental called Egyptian Crave. The lyrics is uh, the middle chapter of that three-part mini-opera I mentioned that uh, Eddie Vedder wrote. Uh, the first part of that mini-opera being Alive, uh, and then the, the concluding part being a track called Footsteps, which is a B-side to, to Jeremy. This track once tells the story of a, of a man's descent into madness and eventually becoming a serial killer. So, yeah, it's a great start. Absolutely furious. Absolutely massive. You've got me straight away. Yeah, without question. Uh, and then should we take it up a notch with even flow? Yeah, they they they're not they're not like gently leading you into this album. No, they are not. I mean, the, again, the sound's fucking huge, and I think the way it's mixed is really clever. I think because Eddie Vedder's got a great voice and a very distinctive voice as well. Yes, and it dominates the song, but. The mix, the mix is well done enough that it doesn't, it dominates, but not in a way that takes away from from the other constituent elements. Like the guitar has room to breathe in the song, and and obviously show the the absolute virtuosity of of the guitarist in in here. Yep. And it's 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 brilliant. It's absolutely great. Uh, it is so uh, interesting. You talk about 
the the virtuosity of the guitar, the the fact that that has room to breathe. I think throughout this album, everyone has their time to shine. Yeah, everyone has their chance to showcase their talents. But it never feels like they're competing. It always feels complementary to what's going on. That is a great credit to songwriters and production staff that they've managed to create and craft that for me. Yeah, it's it's one of the... Um, well, I mean, there are many elements that make Zeppelin albums brilliant, but because... like Zeppelin, Their brevity being one. <laughs> <laughs> but because... The because the band was so good that they had to allow all the constituent elements their their space to be able to to demonstrate their brilliance and that. When are we going to do Zeppelin, Kev? Um, I don't know, but we are definitely doing Zeppelin. I mean, because I can't like I, I can't imagine our musical road trip is going to take a trip to Wolverhampton. <laughs> <laughs> Hi ho, silver lining. Um, yeah, so it, I, I think you're exactly right. The 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 songs are perfectly put together that everyone is shining here everyone is shining here absolutely well so apparently mike mccready has said that his work throughout the album and on this track in particular he's trying to emulate stevie ray vaughan in his guitar style and again so when i talk about it being a nice bridge between what you've had before and what you're about to get you can sort of hear that a couple of things about this then we've just talked about how well produced it is and how natural it feels Apparently, it was a massive struggle to record this track. So Jeff Amon said, I knew it was a great song all along, and I felt that it was the best song that we got the worst take of on the first record. There were a 100 takes on that song, and we just never nailed it. Dave Crewson, who was the drummer, said, I was pretty green back then, and even Flo suffered from too much fluctuation. It was really tough for me. I don't know why. Mike McCready, we did even flow about 50, 70 times. I swear to God it was a nightmare. We played that thing over and over until we hated each other. I still don't think Stone is satisfied with how it came out. That's really interesting to hear because it's fucking great. Yeah, that, that doesn't come across in the record. It doesn't. What I will say, and I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit later on, there's a remixed, remastered version from around 2009 because they remastered the whole album which I actually prefer. But that's not to say that this is bad. It's, it's fuck, I love it. Right from that opening mm-hmm. dirty slide on the guitar and then it all kicks in. It's just fucking, it gets the blood pumping. Yeah, definitely. Cracking stuff. Banger. Shall we go on? Let's go on. I'm still alive, Kev. Whoa. <laughs> right, so this is their debut single. It was released about a month before the album came out in July of 91. Um, got to number 16 in the UK and number 16 on the mainstream rock chart in the US. In 2002, Kerrang! magazine named it as the 51st best single of all time. Uh, do you agree? Um, I'm not sure I would have it that high. I do like it, but I mm-hmm. prefer what's come before. I'm not going to lie about that. What I will say is, so it's much more of a ballad type. So, it, you know, we do need to bring... Uh, down the the tempo a wee a wee touch from from how we've opened. I don't think I ever really truly appreciated the guitar work on it mm. uh, and the multi tracking when I was younger or the drumming. I think what certainly when I first heard it, I was very much transfixed by Vedder's vocal and I didn't really pick up the the nuance of the sound in it. So 
it's good. It's not my favorite on the album, but it's a really, it's a really strong, strong song. I'm surprised it was their, it was their debut release, though. Mm. I mean, it's, it is, it is, is it their most famous song? Arguably. I mean, I would have personally said uh, Jeremy, but you know. Yeah, which we'll come to. I, I, I think even ten years after, fifteen years after the release of the album. The video was still in heavy rotation on MTV mm-hmm. or well, MTV Two as, as it was at the time. Yeah, I agree. Everything again sounds massive. Double tracking is right on the guitars and the reverb just gives it that depth. You've got again something we're going to talk about quite a bit. We'll go through. Never mind. You've got that classic Pixies influenced quiet verse, loud chorus thing going mm-hmm. on. Eddie Vedder does sound absolutely incredible, although inadvertently i will admit he did sort of create that overpronounced drawn out vowel style of singing that 99% of us alternative rock bands started to exhibit through the 90s so I, I was going to say at some point it was a bit later but essentially eddie vedder created chad kroger from nickelback <laughs> Oh my God! Yes, <laughs> it's the it's the overpronunciation and wailing. But like the re- the reason it works for Pearl Jam and for this album and for Eddie Vedder is because he's really good. Yes, Take unlike note, Chad, Chad Kroger. Kroger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To be clear, so uh, we apologise, Eddie Vedder. Uh, we're not saying you directly are responsible for Chad Kroger from Nickelback. It's very much indirectly. But I'm afraid that is on your charge sheet. We, we can we can draw lineage. We can draw lineage indeed. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, we're, we're not going to do you for murder, but maybe involuntary manslaughter. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, Chad Kroger and just <laughs> Nickelback. Oh. Well, we know what Tim's next. Uh, can't get you out, man. <laughs> Bad song's gonna be. Okay, hell, Jesus. So there is one thing I want to pull you up on. You said it's more of a ballad type. Now, and it is, It is in terms of the pace, much more slowed down. Ballad is, when you know what this song is about, mm-hmm. ballad is very much not how I would describe it. No, I, I suppose ballads are used as lazy shorthand for... Yeah, because this is a fucking dark old song. Oh, yeah. But though, but though, like, I suppose what you're referring to in terms of ballads... Is the is the traditional love, love ballad, but like obviously you've got the old style country ballads, which were dark old fucking things. That's fair. That's fair. Right. Okay. So let me read a couple of fairly long quotes from Eddie Vedder, but are worth reading. So the first is from a 1993 Rolling Stone interview, an interview conducted by none other than Cameron Crowe. Well, he was knocking about like all all these bands, wasn't he? Yep, he was. He was indeed. Uh, if you don't know, Cameron Crowe, by the way, is director of films like Vanilla Sky, Almost Famous, um, Jerry Maguire, etc., etc. Um, some very good films in there, uh, and also Vanilla Sky. <laughs> I've seen worse. Yes, indeed. Um, but anyway, uh, right. Uh, so, in that interview with Cameron Crowe, Eddie Vedder said, The story of the song is that a mother is with a father, and the father dies. It's an intense thing because the son looks just like the father. The son grows up to be the father, the person that she lost. His father's dead, and now this confusion. His mother, his love. How does he love her? How does she love him? In fact, the mother... Even though she marries somebody else, there's no one she ever loved more than the father. You know how it is. First loves and stuff. 
and the guy dies. How could you ever get him back? But the son looks exactly like him. It's uncanny. So she wants him. The son is oblivious to it all. He doesn't know what the fuck is going on. He's still dealing. He's still growing up. He's still dealing with love. He's still dealing with the death of his father. All he knows is, I'm still alive. Those three words, that's totally out of burden. So, um, yeah, that's fucking dark. Well, yeah, I, I don't think when I first heard it, when I... <laughs> When I was about 12, 12 or so, um, I didn't. I, this song's about incest. Yeah, I didn't really pick up the Oedipal, um, <laughs> the Oedipal themes. So there's more to it, right? So it, in another interview a few years later, in nineteen ninety nine, Eddie Vedder explained that the, the song is grounded in his real life experience. Though I am at pains to emphasise not the incest part. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Right, so he said it was inspired by a situation I felt I could draw from. This strange twist in my life having to do with a father that I didn't know was my father until later in my adolescent years. And then looking back and realising the whole time I was growing up, I was maybe meeting him briefly. I would catch looks on my mum's face once in a while. I don't know what it was really, but I think she was seeing my real dad in me. So yeah, apparently the man he was told was his father was only a stepfather. They didn't get on. And then this other fella who he'd always known as a family friend, she comes to him when he's 13 and says, oh, yeah, that was your da. Sound. Yeah, you know, some people choose to deal with it in songs. Some people choose to go on to Jerry Springer. So, you know. <laughs> Indeed. And, and lash a chair at a, a, at a fella. Uh, so, yeah, a, a dark old song, but I really like it. Yeah, it, it sounds like I've damned it with faint praise. Like, it's a good, it's a really strong song. Uh, yeah, it is. It is a really strong song. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, should we move on to Why Go? Yes. So it starts off with a nice bit of early 90s bass, um, which could almost be a sting in between scenes in one of the Wayne's World films. <laughs> I, d- I didn't think you were going to say, uh, I thought you were going to go uh, more, more Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's not played by Mark King. <laughs> uh, what do you think of Why Go? So it's a proper moody opening. It's really loud as well. Yeah. So initially, I didn't really like it, but I grew massively, massively into it. Although, what I will say is, I don't think the chorus is particularly interesting. Like, I'm waiting for the verse to start again when they're back to doing something interesting. It, uh, there's a real bite to Eddie Vedder's voice, yeah. the way he sings that verse, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. I, I like this. I don't have anything to say about it, though. That's not. It, I'm not saying that it passes me by. I like this, but it's more of the same, and that's really good. So, without wanting to bore our listeners... I have nothing more to add on this song. No, um, the, so do you know what I actually thought you um, were going to introduce it with? Go on. I thought you were going to make some kind of reference to the Y bird from Playbooks <laughs> or play or latterly play days. <laughs> but where does it stop? <laughs> Watch for the sign of the lollipop. Why go? <laughs> Why? Yeah. Why was the Y bird? Was like I don't know. What was the Y bird? Like a J or a, no? It was a kookaburra, wasn't it? Why was a kookaburra, a very Australian bird, massively Welsh? I mean, that's incredibly racist of you. Clearly, the Y bird family is Australian, but resettled in the Ronda <laughs> from from a coal mining uh, kookaburra family. <laughs> 
Kev, we have now descended into talking about preschool children's television from a gener- from a time in which we were far too old to be watching preschool television. Yeah, but what younger listeners, as though we have any younger listeners, may not be aware of, that before the advent of satellite television or anything like that, you had your four channels, not five, yeah. you had your four channels, and there were preschool TV, or you had like Pebble Mill, or yes, exactly. uh, Richard and Juicy. Yeah, so it was preschool TV, King Rollo, Pigeon Street, long-distance Clara. (laughs) (laughs) And we're now just listing television programmes. And Play Days. And Play Days, but which was nowhere near as good as Play School. No. Because Flora Benjamin represent. Yeah, she was boss. I mean, she still is, because she's alive. (laughs) That's true, she is alive. (laughs) Right, anyway, shall we move on? Yeah, let's let's move on from uh, our reminiscing about children's TV, which we never do. No, indeed. I mean that 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 was niche even for us, though, Kev. Come on, <laughs> right. The next track is Black. Interesting story about Black. Epic wanted it to be a single, but the band refused to release it. Eddie Vedder saying it was too personal and that they uh, felt that the emotional weight of the song would be destroyed by making a video, basically. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe that they thought that that was a single. Like, it's beautiful, and it's yeah. it's a song with great pathos and emotion. Eddie Vedder's voice really emotes the tragedy and darkness within the song. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it is black, you know, it is a dark song. And, like, the guitar refrain, the piano and guitar refrain at the end, like, they add yeah. such a mournful element to it. Like, they do. So it doesn't feel very single. <laughs> it doesn't. Despite that, however, and despite it was never officially released as a single, it charted at number three on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Charts. Well, there you go. This is pre-streaming, so I don't actually understand how this works. Eddie Vedder similarly didn't understand. He actually personally called radio stations to make sure that Epic hadn't done a snide and released it against their wishes as a single. Like, no, no, it's not. We're just playing it because people want to listen to it. They were getting requests to play and play. So I think it's on radio plays, basically. Mm-hmm. It contributes to certainly in the US in terms of the charts. So it was just being played that much because audiences wanted to hear it. Uh, it's another one that, that first appeared on the Stone Gossard demo tape. This is a love song. Eddie Vedder saying it's about first relationships, the song is about letting go. It's very rare for a relationship to withstand the Earth's gravitational pull and where it's going to take people and how they're going to grow. I've no idea what the gravity bit is about that, but it seems very poignant, so there you go. Maybe Eddie Vedder was, uh, I don't know, he, or Stone Gossard was trying to unify uh, Einstein's theory <laughs> and um, quantum theory. Maybe that, maybe that's what the gravitational element's about. <laughs> That's a very good point, actually. Yeah, maybe they were trying to come up with a unified field theory. I <laughs> mean, do it by song. nobody said that it isn't about that. That's true. Nobody has said that. And, you know, if maths and physics don't work, let's try song. Exactly. <laughs> so I would say that this is the first song in which we have a, a sort of slight change of style. As I said, I would describe this very much as, as a ballad. <sighs> if I was being cruel... And to be clear, I like this a lot. I love the way it starts. I love the way it builds. And I love the way it ends in the crescendo again. But if I was being harsh, I could describe it as a soft rock ballad. I can see where you would, where you could come down on that. 
Yeah, I, I, I appreciate, like, I don't agree, but I can see the, I could see how you could argue that. Yeah. T- to be clear, I really like Black, and I always have. But it is, it, 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 this, as I say, this is the first one that I would say is tonally quite different to what we've heard before. Mm-hmm. All right, shall we move on? Yeah, let's, uh, because I think we're going to talk a bit about this. Whew, we are right. So I'll get the difficult bits out of the way first. So it's Jeremy. <laughs> and it's another dark old tune. Oh, Christ. If we thought black was black, this is bleak. Nice. <laughs> uh, right. Okay. So Jeremy, inspired by the true tale of Jeremy Wade Deli, uh, a 16-year-old student at Richardson High School in Texas who shot himself in the mouth in front of his classmate, and his teacher in January of 1991. Uh, It's also in part about a student that Eddie Vedder knew from junior high, who later went on to commit a school shooting. In an interview on radio in 91, Eddie Vedder said, I actually knew somebody in junior high school in San Diego, California, did the same thing. Didn't take his life, but ended up shooting up an oceanography room. I remember being in the halls and hearing it, and I had actually had altercations with this kid in the past. I was kind of a rebellious fifth grader, and I think we got in fights and stuff. So it's a bit about this kid named Jeremy, and it's also a bit about the kid named Brian that I knew. I think it says a lot. I think it goes somewhere, and a lot of people interpret it in different ways. And it's just been recently that I've been talking about the true meaning behind it, and I hope no one's offended, and believe me, I think of Jeremy when I sing it. I mean, the beauty of the writing is you can interpret Jeremy speaking in class in whatever way you want. So I was not aware of that backstory and I'd always maybe like assumed that maybe it was a a child or young adult alluding to sexual abuse or some kind of physical abuse in the home or something like that. And that's, that's the, the strength of it is that you can interpret it how you want. You know that something terrible and tragic has happened to this yep. to this young young person. And it's the skill of it that you get that real story of emotion without saying the obvious thing or making it explicit. It doesn't need to be because your mind fills in the blanks. Yes. And musically, there's so much going on. It's like you're on a journey with it. Until the until the denouement and just the outpouring of angst and grief and anger and everything everything else yeah. that's that's sort of going on at the end. Beautifully put, and very much echoes what I have written in my notes. Yeah, outpouring of angst and emotion that builds and it builds musically, and it builds emotionally in the increased anguished cries mm-hmm. of, of Eddie Vedder's vocal. You know, towards the end, he's sort of shouting out in in anguish. It's like, it's like a primal scream at the end. Yeah, absolutely right. It is. And then throughout... So let's go earlier in the song. Through the verses, the bridge, the chorus, I think the guitar work is so subtle. It just cuts through the vocal. Again, not taken away from it. Complimenting it and emphasising it, but just... 
it's part of the thing that puts you on edge. Yeah. It makes you think that, as you said, it, it puts you in mind of something tragic is being spoken about here, but not spoken about explicitly. And that, as you said, it's really deft. It's really clever. Do you know what? You just triggered a thought in my head, and and I'm, I'm really not trying to be flippant here. You know the the little guitar licker. So you've got the doom 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 doom. Yep. And then that kind of bing bing. You yep. know, like kind of in a detective program or some like. <laughs> and I'm not trying. I'm not trying to be flippant here. You know that kind of intrigue, like mm-hmm. from the start. That kind of yes. little guitar lick does create that kind of something's going on here. So it's something. Are we, to are we back on Seinfeld? <laughs> <laughs> it's something it's something to like it sets you a little bit on edge the yes a bit like the you know the the creepy music in the horror film when yes. you go down the wrong path it is no, that absolutely. sort of thing it definitely is it definitely is and then and then you get right at the end the the way this ends with that sort of emphasized baseline to, mm-hmm. to 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 bring us out so apparently actually that 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 bit at the end that outro the last few seconds it's a 12 string bass and a cello play at the same time and double tracked it's a great way to end it's 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 so unexpected it's so unlike anything else you hear mm-hmm. in contemporary rock music it's a it's a fantastic way to end side one of the album it is a really brilliant song to listen to to rock out to but actually to get into mm-hmm. and, and, and to pull apart before we move on you talked about, and I agree entirely, the subtlety of the lyrics. They don't talk about what Jeremy did. He said, Jeremy spoke in class today. The video, which I said earlier, won video of the year at the VMAs. I don't know if you've ever seen the video. I don't think I have, actually. Slightly less subtle. Mm. So, it's worth a watch, the video. Massive trigger warnings, obviously, but it's worth a watch. So, as I said, it won awards. Directed by Mark Pellington, it tells the story of the song. The very final scene shows Jeremy walking into class, uh, standing before his classmates. He pulls a gun out of his pocket. The original uncut version shows him putting the barrel of the gun into his mouth. Then you get a flash of light, and then you sort of see still images of horrified classmates spattered in blood. Not surprisingly, there was quite a bit of controversy around that. Mm-hmm. So there was an edited version of video in which you don't see Jeremy put the gun in his mouth. You just see a close-up on his eyes, then the flash to white, and, and then the the images of the horrified classmates. I mean, whichever version you watch, it's still pretty graphic and still pretty clear what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it takes away all of the subtlety of the lyrics. It's It's worth a watch, the video. It's a good video. Okay, I can't imagine what it would have been like for Jeremy Wade's family. Mm-hmm. Firstly, to have heard the song, but then to have seen that video. Do you know what I mean? No, it's... no, I get, I get exactly what you mean. And again, this is speaking with 30 years worth of hindsight, particularly when we've seen tragically, repeatedly, graphically, what has happened regarding gun violence in American schools in the times since this. And actually, even in Britain, because Dunblane was what four or five years after this. Yeah, um, yeah, not lot, and um, Columbine's not. Yeah, you know, exactly. Is relatively soon after afterwards. So yeah, it's um, a, a slightly downbeat way to end our conversation about what is a brilliant song, but 
it would have been remiss of me not to raise it. No, I think I think you you're absolutely right to to raise it. It's it's one of those fun, it's one of those funny things that it's become such a massive song given the subject yeah. matter. I mean, much like I don't like Mondays, which is a, which is a huge song, and is based on the true story of a sixteen-year-old uh, Brenda Ann Spencer who fired at children in a school playground in San Diego, uh, killing two adults and injuring eight children. And her explanation for her actions was, "I don't like Mondays. This livens up the day." I didn't know the true background to that. Again, you, you listen to the lyrics of the song, you know what it's getting at, yeah. but I didn't know that it was based on true. Well, there you go. Okay. Should we move off and go and cry? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's lighten it up a bit. I mean, what I, th- I think that the, your description saying it ends the first half really well. I think the album works as a piece really well. So we're going to obviously get into this in the second half of the album. But it's the second half is like the catharsis after the angst of the first side. Well, that's interesting. Okay. Well, let's flip the disc then. Okay. And we start side two with oceans. Okay. So after our very serious Jeremy chat, I have a question to ask you. Go on. Does Eddie Vedder make Bronholm noises at the start? <laughs> shouldn't be living here <laughs> <laughs> it's honestly like if once once i got that that thought into my head i couldn't stop hearing pierce brosnan in my they are very pierce brosnan style uh, grunts and noises at the start of oceans oh brilliant i hadn't picked that up i have to say but fantastic okay I just want to read a quick quote from Jeff Amon here. We were picking songs for 10 and we thought it was important to pick the weirder moments like oceans because we wanted to be able to explore those areas down the line. Which explains why this sounds fuck all like anything else on this album. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Um, It's lighter. Listening to the album, not as flipping the disc or anything, just listening to it through. It's a nice palate cleanser after the intensity of Jeremy. It's all right, but it doesn't fit, is the is what I will say. <laughs> so the first thing I've said is it's quite short, so I bet Kev likes it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think this album was too long, though. Cause... It's not, it's not, it's not. <laughs> but it is under three minutes, this one. I think it's the only track on the album which comes in at less than three minutes. You like it more than I do. I, I've never liked it. Sorry, it sounds like it's been lifted off a Peter Gabriel album. <laughs> Are you suggesting it's Womadtastic? <laughs> well, I, so apparently Eddie Vedder wrote it. It was inspired by his surfing days. Uh, yeah, you can tell. When I listen to Pearl Jam, I don't think of, and I don't come for ethereal synths. I don't really come for songs about surfing. No, exactly. Fretless bass. And there's timpanies. There's t- Listen, I'm a big fan of a timpani, but not on a Pearl Jam record. Uh, right, so what I will say, to be serious for a second, I think it's good to have some variety in the sound. Mm-hmm. I think you're right that coming straight after Jeremy, you need some levity, if that's the right word. Yeah. So, yeah, palate cleanser's a, 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 probably a good way to describe it. So I can see why it's where it is but personally i have never responded well to this song 
I don't hate it. There's bits I do like about it because I do like the way it builds actually towards towards the end. And you will enjoy the Bronholm sounds uh, when you listen to it again. <laughs> uh, but nah, sorry, not for me. Okay, shall we move on then? Let's move on to Porch. Right. So, so this, so we, we talked about is is never mind a punk album. No, it's not. But there are punk elements to it. This is quite punky to start with, certainly. I mean, it's. I'm, I'm glad that we've got that we've uh, brought the tempo back up. We're back and we're rocking. Mm. And I think we needed that after Oceans. And it's got yes. a proper epic ending. Definitely. Definitely, definitely, definitely. So, yeah, it starts... Those opening bars are, are, are quite lo-fi, certainly compared to what we've had before. Mm. But, yeah, it, it ends much bigger. Much, It's back up there. It's back to what we've been used to before. I, I think at times it doesn't actually sound unlike once. Yeah, it's... To be honest, it would... It fits better with stuff on the first side of the album. Yeah, perhaps it does, actually. I could be unkind and say it's a bit al- bit of album filler, this. Yeah. But then on an album this strong, you're going to get things which feel like that because not everything can be absolute classic. Nothing, not everything's going to be a belter. No. So that's doing it a disservice because I like Porch. Uh, it's not fantastic, but it's really solid. Something's got to be the octopus's garden. <laughs> We've just had that with oceans. (laughs) Oh dear. Uh, Well, speaking of octopus's garden, shall we move on to garden? Yeah, I mean, we've had oceans. Now we go on to garden. First thing I said is this is another nice bridge between what we've had over the few Mm -hmm. years previously and what's to come over the next decade. This is a a moody, slowed down rock track, isn't it? So you've got that guitar solo in the middle, yeah? Yeah. Which is great. This could easily fit onto the soundtrack of a mid-90s cop thriller, probably directed by Michael Mann. You know, so this is this is underneath this. The hero, his partner's been hospitalised. His wife has left him. He's descending into the depths of alcoholism and substance abuse. There's neon and lens flares all over the place and you know it's no no i think you've um I, th- I think you've pitched it wrong i think it is in the cop film but this is the so the partner has been shot but it's he's driving in the middle of the night down a neon lit street it's raining he's this is his uh, deep introspection before the denouement. Fair, actually, yes, you have. Uh, you clearly are a better uh, screenplay writer. Than <laughs> <I am. laughs> yeah, agreed. Actually, you're quite right. Um, uh, but listen, I'm being somewhat flippant and cruel there. I really, really like Garden. So, oh, oh, go on. Um, I found the guitar is quite hypnotic. It's well performed, but it's not particularly exciting. It's not doesn't really get me going it's it's perfectly good but yeah i think i think i feel feel about this similar to how you felt a little bit about porch oh bit filler yeah yeah all right fair enough fair enough i really like it Uh, to me it's this is a really good example of 90s alt rock Mm -hmm. As opposed to alt right, um, because I'm quite <laughs> certain that the members of Pearl Jam don't carry tiki torches uh, and aren't virgins, <laughs> and don't like uh, black and yellow uh, Fred Perry tops. No, indeed. No, I I like it. It's not. No, it's not a standout. 
but it's really solid. I like its placements on the album as well, actually, that it's at a point where you're starting to come towards the end. You've got a couple of tracks to go, and it's just a bit more introspective than some of the things we've previously heard. Okay. One thing that I like, so before we get on to the next song, um, that I have just noted, uh, literally as we've been talking. Go on. Is it a sign that this is their debut album, that none of the song titles are longer than two words, basically because they can't be asked <laughs> writing out the set list? That's a good shout. <laughs> but even then, I reckon they still abbreviated them, so Garden just became Gar. <laughs> Alive was Al, even flow, even. Why go was like a question mark and go. <laughs> No, just a question mark. Or the letter Y. <laughs> Good shout. Good shout. Okay, well, we've got two tracks to go. Let's go deep, deep down. Let's go. <laughs> oh, we need to do some E17, Kev. Uh, and then uh, run ourselves over after eating uh, too many baked potatoes. Yes, baked potato. <laughs> Uh, right, what do you think of Deep? I really like it. Yeah. It's really good. The juxtaposition between the vocal performance and the absolute wailing guitars is perfectly pitched. Agreed. This is Soundgarden-tastic. Yeah. All and good. that is all kinds of good, exactly. I mean, there are quite close links between um, Soundgarden and Pearl Jam anyway, so perhaps it's not actually that, that surprising. Well, and Chris Cornell's vocal style and yes. Eddie Vedder's are... Quite they similar. are of a type. Indeed. Yeah, I agree. Eddie Vedder sounds fantastic on this. The guitars, the swirling effect. If you listen to it with headphones on, there's like bits where the guitars come out of the left mm-hmm. ear, then out the right ear. So it's crossfader all over the show. Real psychedelic feel to this, but a real grungy, dirty, gritty. It's really good. Big fan of Deep. Yeah, bang into this. Okay, shall we go to the end? Yeah, let's have our release. Indeed. And I think this tries to be a bit of an epic, but I don't think it's that epic. So it's got a, it's got a much calmer vibe to it. It goes a bit like a kind of hypnotic trance or a meditative chant, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean we're only a, we're only a couple of steps from saying Garanga. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got a story about Garanga, Kev? <laughs> It's always going to be an eternal regret. So basically what Tim's talking about is years ago, I was walking walking through uh, Liverpool City Centre and a Garanga monk came up to me. I don't know why he came up to me. Well, it probably had something to do with the fact that my hair was down to... You look like the Ready Brett kid. Well, yeah, I had very long hair at the time. And he came up to us and offered me the chance to purchase an album of Monk Chants set to heavy metal. And to my eternal shame, I did not buy it. So you didn't buy that, but you did go and see the sort of weird cult gospel choir thing. Yes, so you got so accidentally I went to a cult, <laughs> but I left. I, I managed to leave the cult when they started being very weird. It was very movementarian. Where are you going? <laughs> Though you're free to leave at any time. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think this is an odd choice of closer. That's not to say I dislike it. Again, it, it you've got the build to a, a crescendo end. 
you've got that classic 90s alternative rock sound. In fact, I, I would say this is the sort of song that bands like Bush, Three Colours Red, Crash Test Dummies, Hootie and the Blowfish, etc., 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 would try and recreate. Fucking hell, you've, you've invoked Hootie. <laughs> Not for me, Clive. <laughs> That's uh, that, I'm not saying that this sounds like a track of theirs. I'm saying that th- 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 loads of those bands tried to emulate exactly this mm-hmm. type of song through the rest of the decade. So I'm not having a go at this track. I'm saying that this is exactly the template that others tried to copy. Fucking hell, we're not we're not having a go at Pearl Jam, but we have invoked Chad Kroger and, and Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fucking hell. I think, and this is something I'm going to come back to in a couple of weeks as well, I think there's an issue with track ordering on both of these albums. I think that I think you've got a point there. Uh, you've started this album on such a high, the first three or four songs, and you end not on a disappointment. Again, I need to be clear. I quite like release, but from the the adrenaline that you start with to the way you end, especially when you then come back into the master slave secret track thing it's top heavy it is top heavy so that's me yeah i've got i've got nothing i've got nothing more to add yeah i, I agree with you that i think the first the first side is one of the strongest first sides of an album that we've come across in, until next week <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like it, it does tail we've, i think we've had starker drop-offs oh god oh god, oh, god we've had drop-offs <laughs> That's not to say I dislike Side B. There's only one track on this album that I don't really like. I like everything else on it. It's just the ordering. If you closed, if you had if you had releases the penultimate track, never mind the fucking secret track bollocks. If you had releases the penultimate track and then close with something like Jeremy, even Black, there's an ordering issue there that I think could be easily resolved. That's also what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I, th- I think you're right. Anyway, we're done. Unless you want to talk about the secret trap no. master slave thing. No, no, because it's a shit. It's a shit breaking into heaven. <laughs> it is a shit. Now on that one, there's Bronhob noises too. Actually, <laughs> you mentioned it. <laughs> uh, it's actually it's also quite Brian Eno. Actually, he says a shit breaking into heaven. It's a very Eno, which you do not expect on a nineties grunge oh, album. No, no. <laughs> right. Shall I do some reviews? Yeah, let's get into them. So, I think it's fair to say that initial reviews were quite mixed. Right, so Q, in their initial contemporary review, they called it raucous modern rock, spiked with infectious guitar motifs and powered with driving bass and drums. And they said it may well be the face of 90s metal. I mean, you were so close to being spot on there, Q, then you threw metal into the mix (laughs) and fucked it all up. Well, are we Um, waiting until we get to him? Oh, we are. Don't worry, because fucking hell, I've got a lot to say about him. Uh, And sadly, he's got a lot to say as well. Uh, Right, so David Frick, writing in his review for the Rolling Stone at the time, he liked it. He said, Pearl Jam hurtles into the mystic at warp speed. They ring a lot of drama out of a few declarative power chords and swimming in echo. Which I think is accurate, yeah. but actually seems a little bit unnecessarily dismissive and reductive. But, you know, his review is overall positive. 
Less enthusiastically for Entertainment Weekly, David Brown, he said that Pearl Jam uh, were derivative of fellow Northwestern rockers like Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and the defunct Mother Love Bone. Well, yes, that's because two of the fucking members of <laughs> Pearl Jam were in Mother Love Bone, you bellend. Uh, he also said that it goes to show that just about anything can be harnessed and packaged. That's very, very harsh. It, even harsher still, the NME accused Pearl Jam of trying to steal money from young alternative kids' pockets. Well, I mean, the, at this point, NME are probably banging to pop will eat itself. <laughs> or Ned's Atomic Dustbin. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. Uh, one person who was very critical of Pearl Jam's 10 uh, was one Kurt Cobain of Seattle who claimed the band were nothing but commercial sellouts, and he argued the album was not a true alternative album because it had so many prominent guitar solos. I think one's being a little bit unnecessarily spiky there, Kurt, which is unlike him. Yeah, it's a very, very unlike him. <laughs> uh, finally, well, not finally, because we've got one reviewer who we will certainly go into. Before I get to him, though, retrospectively, reviews have been a lot more positive. So Steve Huey, for all music, claims that the album is a flawlessly crafted hard rock masterpiece. And whilst I wouldn't necessarily call it flawless... Uh, I would certainly describe it as a hard rock masterpiece. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. Okay, shall we get on to Robert Criscow? Okay, come on. Yeah, let, let's hear, well, with due annoyance prepared. Yeah, well, uh, uh, rightly so. Okay, so he wrote for The Village Voice, and, oh, sorry, I said B- minus earlier. In fact, gave it a B plus. I do apologise. He wrote, This isn't the worst of the slew of Seattle albums that are Nirvana's gift to alternative consciousness, but few, if any, sustain and all modulate the same misguided ethos. What must be understood is that the frame of reference here isn't punk, but hippie. (laughs) At root, this is San Francisco ballroom music. As someone who had it on Intelligent Enlightened, and you'd best believe hip authority that only my own small-mindedness stood between me and the true meaning of Blue Cheer, Quicksilver Messenger Service, Savage Resurrection and Shiva's Headband, I risk acute déjà entendu hearing all these white male longhairs play their guitars too long but not too well. Though the mood is less euphoric, I ain't done yet, Kev. Though the mood is less euphoric, it's equally wasted, with the demographic shift from pot and acid to beer and heroin nowhere near as decisive as chemical profits used to claim. All it means is that grunge is acid rock transmuting into metal rather than folk rock on a trip. Take the right drugs and you may find time to note distinguishing characteristics, like the power hooks that hold jams jams together, or the pained vocals that tear them apart. Take the wrong ones and you may give techno another chance so that's essentially word vomit (laughs) (laughs) yes it is (laughs) because that's the amount of sense that's alphabetic spaghetti that that's just words thrown into incoherent ramblings it's just fucking nonsense you hear more sense on speaker's corner let, let's see if uh, it took him um, anything more than a month to change his mind on the Seattle alternative rock scene in the <laughs> 90s, shall we? <laughs> fucking hell, I love you, Nobby. In much the same way that a hostage can sometimes grow to love their captor. <laughs> ah, Helsinki in Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Tis nearly the season. It is. <laughs> oh, I mean, that was a fucking long review. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he liked it, Kev. <laughs> 
So, um, moving on from reviews. Yes. Should we do some legacy? Yeah. Right. Okay. So, sales-wise, it was a slow burner. It didn't break the top 10 in the US until May of 92, which was nearly a year after its release. But as I said, eventually outsold Nevermind and stayed on the Billboard chart for over five years. Outsold Nevermind in the US, hasten to add, not worldwide. And it stayed on the Billboard chart for over five years. Uh, and it made Pearl Jam a household name and, and one of the pioneers of, of the grunge movement, which is why you're listening to this podcast now. There were a group of people who weren't happy with how the album turned out, however. Do you know who they were? Would that be the band? That would be the band themselves. Yes, Kev. Uh, so, in 2001, Jeff Amon said, I'd love to remix 10. It wouldn't be like changing performances, just to pull some of the reverb off it. Uh, in 2002, Stone Gossard said it was overrocked. We were novices in the studio and spent too long recording, doing different takes and killing the vibe and overdubbing tons of guitar. Uh, and then in 2006, Eddie Vedder said, I can listen to the early records except the first one. It's just the sound of the record. It was kind of produced. So they didn't like the way it turned out. They wanted it to obviously sound rawer than it did. Mm-hmm. As I said, there was a remastered version, sort of special edition came out around 2009. It is really good, actually, I've got to say. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd love to say uh, they were wrong. It's really good. But so is this really good. And it actually just goes to show that it's the songs that are really good. Yeah. So Pearl Jam, as most bands do, certainly when they're starting out, they toured relentlessly to promote the album. Uh, Jeff Amon said that essentially 10 was just an excuse to tour. We told the record company, we know we can be a great band, so let's just get the opportunity to get out and play. So, uh, in summer of 1992, the band toured the festival scene in Europe, playing NOLA festivals, including Pink Pop, which, as we've said before, is a great name for a festival. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, Ross Kilder in June of 92. I'm going to come back to Ross Kilder in a few minutes. After Ross Kilder, they actually cancelled the remaining dates on that European tour due to exhaustion, basically. So Jeff Amon said, we've been on the road for over 10 months. I think there just came a point about halfway through the tour, it was starting to get pretty intense. Later in 92, they actually went on the Lollapalooza tour. So, you know, having been exhausted because of intense touring, what are we going to do next? Let's go on the Lollapalooza tour. Multiple dates in multiple cities in a short space of time. Where they met Homer Simpson. <laughs> Smiling politely. <laughs> Two Simpsons references in one pod. Yes. Uh, amongst the other bands on that Lollapalooza lineup in 92 were Red Hot Chili Peppers, Soundgarden, and Ice Cube. I'm imagining that. And obviously not suggesting any particular band were responsible for it, but I would imagine that the drugs were were free-flowing. Indeed. (laughs) So their second album, Versus, was released in October 1993. That sold over 950,000 copies in its first week of release in the US. Fucking hell. Which at the time was a record broken in 1998 by... I'm going to give you three guesses and I bet you'll get nowhere fucking near... Spice Girls? No. Foo Fighters? No. Chili Peppers? No. Garth Brooks? Of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. Garth. I was on the right track with Spice Girls. <laughs> Garth Brooks. Anyway. Um, could have been worse. Could have been Garth Crooks. <laughs> Naturally, I'd rather hear a Garth Crooks album than a Garth really? Brooks album. <laughs> 
I mean, maybe that's a clash that we need to do. <laughs> Brooks versus Crooks. I'm up for it. Garth Brooks's team of the week. <laughs> Still be better. Yeah, would. So, after the release of Versus, well, actually, after the release of 10, the band really scaled back on their sort of promotional interviews and stuff. And actually, after Jeremy, perhaps understandably, they refused to do any more videos for a long time. There's a couple of interesting things I want to talk about. Sorry, I know we've been going for a while, but a couple of more interesting things in terms of Pearl Jam's history. So, in 1994, they actually began a sort of legal dispute with Ticketmaster over Ticketmaster's edition of a surcharge on ticket sales for Pearl Jam gigs. Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament testified at a congressional subcommittee in Washington, D.C. in June of 94. They alleged that Ticketmaster's practices were anti-competitive and monopolistic, and they were gouging fans. A Michigan congressman wrote a bill requiring full disclosure to prevent Ticketmaster from trying to hide those service fees. Pearl Jam eventually cancelled its 1994 summer tour in protest. Later in 94, the Justice Department dropped the case. Pearl Jam continued its boycott of Ticketmaster, refusing to play venues that had contracts with the company. And they tried to work around Ticketmaster's exclusivity contracts by hosting charity events and benefit gigs at major venues because those exclusivity contracts often had clauses allowing charity events and promoters to sell their own tickets for those events. Fortunately, um, Ticketmaster learned from this and completely dropped their rapacious business model, uh, not at all leading to the current spectre of surge pricing. Are we talking about the shite hawks that are Viagogo and StubHub and other such? No, um, we are actually talking about the main Ticketmaster um, hub who have introduced a thing called surge pricing. What is surge pricing? So if there is high demand for a ticket then the price goes up. Fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> Shit bags. At least they don't uh, hide their service charges now. You can't avoid paying them, but it's clear like £18,000 service charge, £9 ticket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just to bring things down tonally, again, sorry guys, quite a bit of dark stuff today. I said I was going to come back to Roskilde, and here we go. People who have followed Pearl Jam's career will know what I'm about to talk about. So, uh, on a European tour in 2000, they ended that with a performance at the Roskilde Festival in Denmark on June the 30th of 2000, in which, due to a crush at the front of the crowd, nine people were trampled underfoot and suffocated to death. Uh, the band made numerous requests for the crowd to step back. They stopped playing to calm the crowd um, once they realised what was going on, but by that point it was it was too late. They cancelled the remaining dates on the tour. The band contemplated splitting up after that event because of what had happened. A month later, they started playing gigs in North America again. Eddie Vedder said of that, that after Ross killed her, Playing and facing crowds, being together, it allowed us to start processing it. Yeah, that was big news at the time. Yeah, definitely. Tragic is all you can say, really. Mm-hmm. I think we'll say we've both been at gigs and at festival performances where you get... Swept swept by the crowd. Absolutely. And it can get scary at times. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I couldn't have us go through a Pearl Jam album and not touch on that again. Um, mm-hmm. 
All right, just bringing things to a close then, because we've been going a long time. So, Eddie Vedder himself was asked about the band's legacy in an interview in the year 2000. He said, I think at some point along the way, we began feeling we wanted to give people something to believe in because we all had bands that gave that to us when we needed something to believe in. That was the big challenge for us after the first record and the response to it. The goal immediately became how do we continue to be musicians and grow and survive in all of this? The answers weren't always easy, but I think we found a way. I think I'll leave it there, if that's okay. Yeah, I think that's a good place to end. Right, okay. So, Kevin, 10. What's your best song? What's your worst song? Okay, so worst song, I would say it's probably Garden. Ooh, okay. And I assume you're probably going to come out with something similar for, for another song. It's not that it's bad. It's just the, it didn't really excite me. It's mm. it's fine, but never grabbed me. Best song is a tricky one because it start, the album starts with an absolute fucking blitzkrieg. But I think, and you may have picked up on... When we were talking about it, I think that Jeremy is a wondrous song because of the depth of emotion and everything that we we described when we talked about it. I I think it's a testament to the sheer craft of the band. Fair enough. Uh, Okay, I'll do my best song first, uh, and I'm going to read you verbatim what I've written. It's whichever of Evenflow or Jeremy, Kev doesn't pick. (laughs) (laughs) So in all seriousness, I adore both of those tracks. So Evenflow also has lyrical depth. And we didn't talk about this at the time. Evenflow is Mm -hmm. about a a homeless fella. Uh, And there's some great lyrics within that. Again, are quite subtle, but are really poignant and powerful. I I just fucking adore both of those tracks. Everything you said about Jeremy, I agree with. Even flow, the way it starts, takes you up from the first track, which is already fucking intense. Massive sound, great guitars, great bass, great drums, fantastic vocals, great lyrics. It's a belter. So really, what I'm saying is, I like Jeremy and Even Flow Eve evenly. Mm-hmm. But since you picked Jeremy, I'm picking Even Flow. Fair enough. Uh, my worst song won't be any surprise. It's Oceans and similar to what you said yeah it just doesn't really resonate with me i've never really liked it so obvious choice okay boom i think we are done we are most definitely done not quite as brief as some of our recent shows but as you said we had a lot to talk through something tells me there's quite a bit for us to talk through in a couple of weeks too kev yeah we may have a bit of a chat (laughs) however before (laughs) before that indeed I mean, there's not much has gone on in the world since we last recorded, has there? No. Um, I mean, we could have we, we could have easily spoken about that uh, becoming the Chancellor of, Ex- of the Exchequer is like being a bassist in the fall or <laughs> a member of the Sugar Babes. <laughs> When's your go? <laughs> <laughs> not for a while yet. There are loads of things that we could we could point to, but. Of course, I'm going to have to talk about Elon Musk's Twitter takeover. Farm Foods, Hank Scorpio. <laughs> right before I get into before I get into it, what is the what is the reason that people defend him? Is it that they think that he's going to be Tony Stark? <laughs> yes, I think that's it. Basically, yeah. So before I get on to talk talking about it, I'm going to quote someone directly from Twitter because I think it's a really good thread. So it's Josh Marshall, um, who's at Josh TPM, 
a, he's an American journalist, and this is absolutely brilliant. So, let's review. Musk went on a bender and offered to buy Twitter at a price based on a weed meme, because the uh, price he offered was fifty four twenty, so four twenty. The yes. um, then he agreed to a binding agreement to purchase it. Apparently, he didn't fully grasp how binding it was. Then he tried to get out of the deal. Twitter sued to force him to purchase the company. He was losing in court and decided to give up. He was forced to buy the company. Today, he's firing half the company's employees via email. Classy. Advertisers are leaving in drones after one week. He spent the last three days posting passive-aggressive tweets about his new subscription program that, if successful, would raise maybe 5% of the current revenue. (laughs) Also, he's loaded the company with a billion dollars of annual debt service. Musk needs to sign up 10 million subscribers to Twitter Blue just to cover the debt service fees. Hey! (laughs) And on that good news story, uh, slagging off the owner of Twitter, where might people follow us on social media? So just before I finish my Twitter Twitter rants... it does appear that his his aim and all the worst people have rejoined Twitter or are putting incredibly offensive abuse on it. So before uh, Twitter becomes a hellscape that should be portrayed by Hieronymus Bosch. Um, <laughs> May I just interject an even worse hellscape? Yes, exactly. Even worse that should be portrayed by Hieronymus Bosch. Um, you can check out lovely Twitter content at Clash Album. Boom. You can go to our carefully curated quality content at not at all owned by equally evil fella, (laughs) uh, Mark Zuckerberg, our Insta page, at Clash Album. Or if you want to also avoid um, evil people, you could send us an email to our Gmail address, (laughs) um, (laughs) albumclash at gmail.com. Very much part of the problem. (laughs) Bravo, sir. Bravo. Well done. Thank you. (laughs) Genuinely, guys, again, peeling back the curtain, we debated just doing a whole show talking about all the shit that's gone on on social media over the past month. And we we would have filled up the hour easily. We easily would. We easily would. Anyway, that's brilliant. Well in, Kev. Yeah, so please continue to support all these evil uh, corporations owned by not at all weird <laughs> maladjusted yeah, exactly. there you go but you know do so by following us and uh, sharing it with your mates um, you know please 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 we would we love you guys you're great you're you will always be our core audience you know the hardcore guys but we're branching out into our second album our third album you know now we need to get the the bandwagon jumpers. You know, we'll we'll still make reference to things that you know from the first album. You know, from the from the EP. We'll still exactly. We'll still play some of the classics, but we need now. To... We need our sex on fire. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, right, I'm going to go. It's been a long pod. It has. Right. So next week, I will be taking us through the little known uh, Nevermind by Nirvana. And until then, thank you very much for listening, guys. I have been Tim. And I continue to be Kev. And we'll see you soon. Take care. Ta da. Ta da.